Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Oh, gosh, no. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, an appropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello. Welcome to the Hostile Work Environment Podcast. My name is Mark Alifans. I am here, as always, with my neighbor to the north, although it's really east, Kate Bischoff. <laughs> we feel much more north today. It is very cold here, so yeah, we feel you, you legit very Arctic. Feel that? Yeah, it's a negative twenty-seven. Feels like negative fifteen. Regular temperature today, so it's chilly here. Yeah. How are you yeah. doing? Oh, I'm I'm fine. We're you know it's normal forty something in Portland and. Not raining for once, though overcast as usual uh, for this time of year. So okay, uh, good. So we have I a see, real. I see that you're ready for the Super Bowl. I am. I have my shirt. Super Bowl shirt on. I thought we'd talk about that in a minute. This is my Eagles won the Super Eagles. Bowl shirt because it's the only Super Bowl thing I have, uh, and that was a <laughs> joyous occasion three years ago. Uh, today is not so joyous. We're recording this. Uh, Everyone, a few hours before the Super Bowl, and we'll 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 be talking about that very briefly here in a moment. Uh, but we have a really special episode for everyone today, Yay. including a special guest. This guest should need no introduction on the podcast. He is my new law firm colleague, hiking partner, and boss. Lab- Yes, I mean, boss. I sort of, yeah. <laughs> I suppose you could make that argument. Just be clear. Uh, labor lawyer extraordinaire, brother from another mother, <laughs> co-founder of this podcast, <laughs> Dennis Wesselin. Welcome back to the hostile work environment. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kate. Good to be here. <laughs> That was quite uh, so the introduction. Are you wearing? Yeah, he really laid it on thick. Notice that's why I pointed out that you were his boss. Mm. So. Thank you for doing that, by yeah. the way. It saved yeah, me. I need, from I need to win Dennis. <laughs> I need to win Dennis over big time still. You do. Yes. Mark's still so on Dennis, probation. So Dennis, we brought here <laughs> in the probationary period. Yep. Uh, yes. So we brought you here, Dennis, to talk about the neck brace that you're wearing for the NLRB whiplash. Oh my God! Yes. It's like, I, I, I can't turn my head. It's like that guy that sued Michael Brady on the Brady Bunch. Remember that? <laughs> no, I'm not that old. Oh, sorry. Gen X joke. <laughs> Our older listeners will get that. Good. I'm glad. We have something for everybody. So... Because we have a new president, we have a new set of management over at the NLRB, right? We do. Our new president, Joe Biden, fired the old general counsel to the NLRB, a guy named Peter Robb, who was, like me, a management side labor attorney in his prior life. And on day one, um, Uncle Joe fired his butt. So he's out and... A new guy by the name of Peter Orr is in his place and doing all kinds of crazy stuff at the NLRB that we're struggling to keep up with, but we're trying our best. Now, the five-year-old boy or fifth-grade boy in me is like, there's two Peters, which is kind of like replacing the old Dick Griffith and Harry Johnson joke that you could make before. So Dick and Harry Johnson. Yeah. So... But we have a new Peter Orr who has an incredibly different philosophy than Peter Robb, right? Correct. Despite the fact that it's a Peter Fest. (laughs) (laughs) Our new Peter is a big fan of of policies that will favor labor unions and makes it make it much easier for them to organize and make it much harder for their members to go after labor unions for violations of what we call the duty of fair representation. So he's trying his best to make it much easier for labor unions. And as you can imagine, that's that's well, causing us management side labor lawyers a whole lot of whiplash. 
Yeah, let me interject here just uh, as a framing mechanism that labor law is not like other law in, in that the, the significant practices that happen in labor law really can change significantly based on whoever holds the White House and then a uh, hold over the uh, National Labor Relations Board positions in terms of policy making. Uh, and so unlike your, you know, employment laws, which yes, can change, and, and we talked a bit about executive orders that were changing those things, uh, the whiplash of labor law is, is much more significant and frequent uh, compared mm -hmm. to, and we have to like re-educate ourselves every four or eight years, depending on if the party holding the White House changes. Uh, and so we just had four years of Republican uh, NLRB, which made things easier for employers. Uh, now we expect a more pro-union stance coming from the Biden administration. So Dennis, uh, you did a, a good uh, client alert earlier this week that I thought uh, touched on a number of the things that uh, Peter Orr has already pulled back on. Yeah, And I thought maybe it would be uh, great to talk about those and then do some prognosticating on what else do you expect to change? Sure thing. So Peter Orr, who replaced Peter Robb, is the general counsel of the NLRB, which means he's the gen he is the NLRB's top lawyer. So he's not a board member. That's their terms are actually not up for several months. Yep. So we're actually not going to see a turnover in the board until maybe in August. So this is just the first step in that incredibly political process that you just described, Mark. And what Peter Orr's job is, is to one, decide what cases that the field offices of the NLRB are going to take up and prosecute. And it's also to set the direction for the regional office on how and what to investigate. And the way that he does that is through issuing what they call advice memos, which is basically the edict from up on high. Here is what <laughs> all of you guys out in the regional offices throughout the country should do. This is what your job now entails. So very quickly after taking the helm at the NLRB, Peter, Peter Orr issued a whole bunch of advice memos retracting advice that had been given to the regional offices by his predecessor, Peter Robb. So, for example, Peter Robb had issued a memo saying that employers entering into neutrality agreements with the union might violate the National Labor Relations Act, and thus telling the field offices to go and investigate neutrality agreements. Peter Orr did the old yoink and pulled that memo from circulation. <laughs> so that's no longer active advice. So other things that he also yoinked were a memo that set out new rules for unions that made them inform their members that the members might not have to pay union dues after contract expiration. A memo that, you know, obviously the unions didn't really care for because it affected their bottom line. Um, he pulled out of circulation, a memo that increased the amount of financial information that unions are required to disclose. He pulled a memo to NLRB investigators ordering them to turn over audio recordings received during the course of an interview. Um, that would be something that perhaps a union member took surreptitiously and in violation of wiretapping laws. Peter Robb said, yep, we need to give those to the party that was being recorded. Peter Orr says, nope, no, you don't. Um, he also withdrew a memo telling investigators not to speak directly to former managers and supervisors, um, without having the employer's counsel present. And then he withdrew three memos that made it easier for employees to bring a charge against the union for something that we call the breach of the union's duty of fair representation. So that would make it easy. Those memos made it easier for union members to quote unquote sue their own union for doing a lousy job. And our new Peter withdrew all those memos. 
So every one of the withdrawals that um, Peter Orr made were in favor of either increasing unionization, increasing the union's pocketbook, or simply making it easier for unions to go about their day-to-day business. So even though these are just called advice memos, they still have some pretty significant force uh, in terms of changing how the board reacts to things that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, these are like big policy statements. What's that, Kate? You owe me a Coke someday. Sure thing. (laughs) So, So, go ahead, Kate. One of the things that I am waiting for, and I think it needs a board decision, so we won't get it until later this year, probably, is the Purple Communications swing, which, if you're unfamiliar, Purple Communications was a decision under an Obama NLRB that held that in a, if an employer has the email addresses of its employees, it one needs to share them and it needs to allow the union to use an employer's email system to communicate if the employer is letting others use that email system, right? Yeah. I mean, is that essentially it? That is essentially and it. And at the and the at the time there was a very famous board member, Harry Johnson, who wrote a dissent that then became what mm-hmm. the board held during the Trump board years. And so I suspect that we're going to be back into purple communication areas here relatively soon too. I would imagine that is going to be one of the first cases that we see out of a newly constituted board. And what I, and this, this is exactly how these advice memos that Peter Orr will start to issue will work is he will direct the regional offices of the NLRB to look for a case to bring to a new NLRB to overturn the Trump rule on employer access or employee access to the employer's email system. That's kind of how this starts is that the, the, the general counsel will say, here's where we want to change the law. All you guys out in the regions go investigate cases that will allow us to do that. And then those cases will end up in front of an NLRB. And since it takes a while for these cases to roll out, I expect that we're going to see Peter Orr issuing a lot of advice memos to the regions to say, here's where to start looking. And I think the email rule is going to be very high on the list. The the other thing that I'm really looking forward to with interest, and I don't think I don't have a prognostication as to which way it's going to go is when we had an Obama GC, Dick Griffin, he had issued a advice memo, I think, not necessarily to staff, but I don't remember what exactly it was, but it was a, here's the employment handbook you should be using in that these policies don't violate the NLRB's uh, protection or the NLRA's protection of concerted protected activity. And one of those issues that was really controversial at the time was whether or not you can demand respect in the workplace. And I think things in workplaces and society in general have gone way off the rails since that original memo was put out that I think even a very pro-union organ mindset would still say you can require people to be respectful in the workplace where because that was what the Trump NLRB had kind of held is that yes of course you can demand this whereas before if you were demanding respect it might not be concerted protected it might violate that because you're dictating how people can communicate that is going to be a fascinating issue and my reaction to that Kate was very much the same as yours and the way that arose was there was a long, long line of NLRB cases that held as long as somebody is engaging in concerted protected activity, like union activity, they can pretty much say whatever they want. You want to call somebody a racial slur? Go right ahead. Just do it in the context of union activity. 
You want to call your boss the C word. You can do that if you then follow it up by saying go union. Because the board in its infinite wisdom said, we're not going to allow, you know, all this, you know, so-called woke attitudes towards, you know, racism and sexism to interfere with somebody's right to engage in union activity. <laughs> So we would see things like, you know, racial slurs being thrown at replacement workers trying to cross a picket line or horrible sexist language levied against bosses and supervisors and managers and employers having no ability to do anything about it. And it was one of the things yeah. that, you know, kind of ironically, it came about during a Trump administration that was not exactly known for political correctness. But that NLRB decided enough is enough, and it issued an opinion that basically said, look, employers have a legal obligation not to allow sexist and racist harassment in the workplace. Just because somebody like goes on some racist rant and then slips in go union at the end of it, which was the exact case the board was looking at, by the way. Triple um, play, right? Yeah. Triple play. That is not an excuse to allow somebody to be uh, sub subjected to racist, sexist, and other unacceptable treatment. And the way they framed that opinion was brilliant because it's going to be very, very hard for a democratically appointed new board to come along and say, oh, no, we're cool with racism. <laughs> I don't see that happening. Yep. Like, you know what? Title seven eh, comes in second place to the national labor relations act. I, it's just because it's so important. It's just going to be really, really difficult for a, a democratically appointed board to sub suddenly embrace attitudes that kind of went out in the 1950s. Yeah. So I'm hoping knock on wood that we don't see a reversal of that. But where I, I do I, think I, we're going to see a whole lot of activity is the other side of that, which is during the Obama administration, the board was very interested in policing the employee handbooks and policies of employers, especially non-union employers, because keep in mind, employees have rights under the National Labor Relations Act to engage in protected concerted activity, even though they're not part of a union. And the Obama board felt that a lot of employer policies, especially around social media, infringed upon those rights by requiring that employees, you know, do things like not badmouth the employer on social media. So it'll be interesting to see if we do see a return to the policing of non-union employers' various handbooks and policies. I suspect we will. I, I do too. I'm hoping that we get more guidance. I, I mean, regardless of what the memo itself said, the fact that there was a memo saying, here's what your policy should say, I think that was really helpful to employers. Oh my God. Because it was then, the best. you know, like having those guardrails was really helpful, especially for those of us who were writing it to go, you know, that Wendy's social media policy, we can just plagiarize the poop out of that and that'll work going yeah. forward so i mean i was revising i was revising my old employer's handbooks and policies on what felt like a weekly basis and it was driving me nuts mm -hmm. until the board finally came out and said you know what these policies are cool and i went great control c control v boom boom we're done <laughs> and then we could sleep well at night thank you board right yes kids please listen plagiarism is okay <laughs> Oh, it is the best. <laughs> I mean, it's not plagiarism when my tax dollars helped fund its writing, correct? <laughs> that what works? Okay. Sure. I think, I think Kate we'll just may have that. titled the episode right there. <laughs> plagiarism okay, is the awesome. best. So can we, ask, I have some questions about Alabama for you. Not only because I have friends in Alabama, but because we have some major unionizing activity happening in Alabama. Oh, yeah, we do. Of so all the places Amazon in the world. Is, right. Right. It's like, it's, you know, normally, it's weird. if you looked at 
where union employees exist, they exist mostly in the north. In the south of the U.S., they it, the percentages are very small, but we have a unionized right. activity at a place in Alabama where I think this is one of the first unionizing activities of Amazon. And Amazon had asked for the election to be on site, but the NLRB said, nah. So why did they do that? <laughs> Great question. For years, the NLRB has been wanting to do more mail ballots. And employers are generally not inclined to agree to a mail ballot. They want an in-person election. And if you think back to the recent nationwide elections that we had, the debate is like shockingly similar. Um, <laughs> unions love mail ballots. And a non-cynical person would think that's because it makes a nice, healthy environment where people can vote free of coercion from either side and any of that stuff. And it increases voter turnout and more people get to weigh in on what they have, you know, on a very important decision, whether to be represented by a union or not. A cynical person might wonder if a union's going to like drive around to members' houses or voters' houses and pick up those ballots and offer to vote for them. Um, certainly that is the charge that employers have levied against the mail ballot at the NLRB for many, many years. Suitcases full of ballots falling off of trucks? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Okay. Sounds vaguely familiar. So the NLRB has long liked the idea of mail ballots because it's easier. Like an in-person election, what they literally do is the board agents go out to the employer's business. They have a bunch of suitcases with them and they're pretty cool. It's like inspector gadget stuff. Like you open up this suitcase and it folds into a voting booth. And then they run a paper ballot election and everybody goes into that little fold-out voting booth. They check their box, yes or no. They fold their paper and they put it in a cardboard box that's been, you know, taped up with like 18 years worth of masking tape. And then at the end of the vote, they like slit open that masking tape and take all the mail ballots out, or sorry, all of the paper ballots out and count them. And in a mail ballot, you do kind of the same thing, except there's no voting booth. You just throw it in the U.S. mail. It all goes to the NLRB office, and then they still have an in-person vote count where everybody can look at the ballots. For the NLRB, they don't want to have to go out to some Amazon warehouse in Alabama. They would much rather just sit at home, let the mail ballots flow into the P.O. box, and then go down and open them all up in one, you know, in one hour. It's just less time, money, effort. It's easier. So I think the NLRB doesn't necessarily have some ideological reason for favoring mail ballots. They just like the simplicity. But historically, well, unions love them and employers fear them. And we're also in a pandemic. so And that changed everything. Because yeah. it used to be the NLRB would encourage mail ballots, but except in very rare circumstances. And it was usually when you had multiple sites of employment where they would have to have like 15 board agents conducting an election all at once. They would default to an in-person election. That's just kind of been the tradition. And if one side asked for an in-person election, they'd generally get it. But now with the pandemic, the board's like, no, we're not going to do in-person elections. And they put their foot down. So now they're exceptionally rare. And the irony of it is, is that it's being held at a warehouse where people have to go and work in person. These aren't people that are working from homes, you know, putting your Amazon Prime goods into cardboard boxes. These are people working at a warehouse in person. They're all there. And yet they're going to be voting from home. So. I Go democracy? Like, I... The idea that it they're all there, I think, is true in some sense. But you're also, you know, sharing all the pens. You're sharing all the 
space. So there is an argument to be made that this, even if they were there, it's still safer for them to mail them all in. But the idea that it is more cost effective for the NLRB, okay. I I like that argument better because I think it (laughs) is more cost effective and healthier for them too. So Yeah. And, you know, I I shared like the cynics idea of what's going to happen in these elections. I've lived in Oregon for as long as we've had mail ballots. Like we do not vote in person, folks. We all mail our ballots in by the mail and we have for like 30 years. And you know how much voter fraud we have? None. 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 So I don't freak out about mail elections the same way some of my management side colleagues do. So I got a question, Dennis. So around the same Amazon uh, campaign here, uh, a union Twitter account put out uh, a video, which I won't get into the video, but the messaging around that video says, uh, Amazon workers are exposing what's happening in Alabama. They say Amazon is forcing them into anti-union meetings, texting them up to five times daily, putting messages in bathrooms even changing traffic light patterns to harm union organizing. And I, a little more on the, the traffic lights because I was thought that was interesting. So Amazon apparently got city <laughs> employees, this allegedly, to change the stoplight at the facility the workers are trying to unionize uh, and to, to make it, I think, so that there's longer breaks uh, between the light so that uh, organizers have time when cars are stopped at a red light to provide the drivers of those cars with info uh, against the union. Is that all okay? Wow, do they also like run up and wash windshields while they're doing this? <laughs> that's that's the organizing yes. campaign in the New York Maybe City ask area. for some spare change. I mean... So advance on your union dues. Mm-hmm. Man. So other than the Is traffic that light thing, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I would say getting the traffic lights changed might be. All those other things are actually lawful. Mm-hmm. Whether they're a an effective campaign tool or not, I couldn't tell you. But you are, at least up until the 24-hour period immediately preceding the election, you are allowed to have what we call captive audience meetings with potential union voters, where you can force them as a condition of their continued employment to sit down and listen to the employer's views on whether they should vote to be union or not. Um, You can Um, send out texts and messages and all kinds of stuff. Okay. My favorite is the, is the messaging in the bathroom because there is (laughs) Like that is a captive audience right there. So if you put the sign up of why we're great and we don't want a third party to be involved in our interactions right there, that bathroom stall works good every time. Yeah. Do you want a third party involved right now? Absolutely not. <laughs> Make sure you wipe, but wipe out. <laughs> like, I, there's so many problems <laughs> Wipe to be out had. the union. <laughs> no, that one will probably on be an unfair labor practice. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I oh, think man. we have a business opportunity right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hostile work environment TP. Especially if we go with business. Right? Do your business. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, the, the pain. This is developed very quickly. Well, yes. I, I, we can bring it back to a higher level here. It won't be hard. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so we're half an hour in here. Uh, I think we've got a couple of other stories to talk about. Uh, Dennis, thanks for the labor, uh, insight. Hopefully you are willing to come back for more labor and other stuff, uh, in the future. Uh, it didn't take too much, uh, arm ringing, uh, to get you to get you to join (laughs) us. Uh, but, uh, you just got a few minutes, stick around for these last few stories. Sure, I'll stick around. This is the fun part. Yeah, now, now hey. you can just be the color commentary. Kate, you have it's an article. It's the role I'm more accustomed to, let's be fair. Right, right. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> the real entertainer. Usually the Peter jokes are my territory, Kate. I'm, I know. The... 
Yes, I know. But I'm living with two teenage boys who still think it's funny. So I'm still looking for all the Peter, Dick, and Harry jokes. So, but And my favorite part about uh, former G.C. Griffin and former board member Harry Johnson is that they would go on tour together and speak at ABA conferences together. And they genuinely liked each other, even though they came out on the opposite side of most things. But they genuinely liked each other. And they kind of build themselves as the Dick and Harry Johnson. So, so I enjoyed them a great deal. I miss them. That's cool. So, yes. Okay. So, so can we talk about a, elite Harvard. Ho- universities? Yeah. Yeah. Harvard. Let's talk about Harvard. Harvard. Okay. So I, I can't drop the art. I've never been able to do the Boston accent, but this is a horrible story. So in the from 1979 to 2015, Harvard had a professor by the name of Jorge Dominguez, who was a gov- I believe in the government po- uh, political science department. I believe, um, and in the early 1980s, a woman by the name of Terry Carl came forward and alleged that he had been sexually harassing her for two years, and. Harvard claimed that it had done an investigation, but nothing really happened. He got a little bit of discipline, but nothing really happened to him. And she left to go be a professor at Stanford in response. She well, traded in 28, yeah, she totally traded up. Much better weather, at least. Uh, the Chronicle, which is a higher education magazine, or I don't know what it wants to call itself. It's it definitely Chronicle has a lot of, of news. higher education. Yeah, it it covers a lot of newsy stuff about the university and academia in general. And in 2018, they had done an investigation and found that Dominguez had stayed and continued to sexually harass women for almost four decades. And this week, the president of Harvard University, Lawrence Bacow, I think that's how we say his name, formally apologized to Ms. or Professor Carl for the harassment that Jorge Dominguez had put upon her for the time she was there. And specifically, the letter says that she deserved better, that she and others had suffered greatly as a result. And I also apologize to those subsequent sexual harassment who that that could have been avoided had hardware, Harvard taken timely and appropriate actions, which would be required under the law. And so the president goes on to say, we all owe Dr. Carl a gret of data- gratitude for doing the right thing, especially when it was difficult and being a pers- being persistent in her efforts to demand justice. And this comes after Harvard has done um, a review of all of its policies and a report came out saying that Harvard needed to take more action to reduce friction and the power dynamics to make sure that people felt free to complain about harassment, particularly excited um, this concept of psychological safety, which comes from Dr. Amy Edmondson, a great book called The Fearless Organization. Every HR person should read it. But talking about how people should feel safe to bring up misconduct, talk about gender imbalances, and expand transparency around investigations so that people feel like if they are being harassed, they feel more comfortable bringing those allegations forward and something can actually be done about it. So it's a fascinating acknowledgement that this occurred and a desire to do better, which I think we want a lot of employers who have allowed this to happen to do. It's also incredibly risky to do it if it happens close to the actual report, because then you could get yourself into legal liability. But because this happened in the early 80s, there's no legal ramifications for Harvard other than the PR black eye that could exist. And because Dr. Dominguez left in 2015, the statute of limitations is blown on everything at this point in time. So so it's a safe time for Harvard to come out and, and acknowledge past, past mistakes. Wrongs. But, but there's, you know, so the cynical view is, is they waited until, until they, they're not on the hook anymore. <laughs> But uh, but I, I think the more optimistic view is the acknowledgement and uh, the acknowledgement acknowledgement of what happened, as well as an acknowledgement that there's more work to be done and that they're committed to doing so. Do you guys think that, that the role of tenure 
at universities makes it harder for universities to actually like police and correct behavior like that? I don't think it should. I think it does. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And yeah, and yeah I mean, I agree. It's, it's interesting there how should not be protection here. No, you know, I think you can yeah. give somebody a whole lot of academic freedom without saying like, you've got carte blanche to be a sex harasser. Right. I mean, the, the idea of tenure is to allow you some safety in making advancing arguments that might not be what society wants to hear or what the university wants to believe. It's not that you get touch boobs recklessly. Like that's not what it's designed to do. So I think there is exactly, as you mentioned, there is a line to be taken where it comes to things that not only expels legal liability for the institution, but also is bad for the people that you are attempting to serve. So yeah, fun times. Agreed. All right. Got one more story here. This comes from a uh, Law 360 article that came out a few days ago. Headline, Bank of America client says ex-worker tricked her to steal <laughs> nude pics. And I saw this dun, headline dun, dun. and I, I said, this is for the podcast. So, Bank wow, of America. Inquiring minds want to know more. Yes, well... <laughs> I'm glad you inquired because I was just going to leave it there, but now I can tell you more. (laughs) So, uh, the, uh, client sued bank of America, uh, earlier this week, uh, or last week in, this is in California state court over allegations that a former employee tried to trick her to gain access to her cell phone and then surreptitiously sent private nude photographs of the client from her phone to his phone. So client here, uh, Jane Doe, uh, says she met with the bank's then relationship manager, Mauricio Benitez, at this is in Venice, California, in January of 2020, so just before the pandemic, uh, with the intent of replacing a lost debit uh, or credit card. Uh, Benitez told Doe that he could bypass the $10 fee that comes with replacing the card, but he would need access to the Bank of America app on her phone to do so. So uh, she then gives her phone to Benitez, uh, who, it doesn't say whether he waived the $10 fee, but apparently during the time uh, that he had the phone, uh, I must have made it pro quo i don't know it must have been like hey this is taking a minute this is taking a minute hold on i I just i just need a minute here and while he was doing that (laughs) started rifling through her photographs and found some some nude photographs of her that he then texted to himself the complaint says at no time did plaintiff consent to uh, Benitez accessing her personal and private photographs, uh, nor did she consent to him sending them to himself. Uh, he deleted the text conversation from plaintiff's phone so that plaintiff would not know what he had done. But she figured it well, out a few days later out? when she opened up her laptop and saw an exchange of text messages with an unknown number containing private photos of herself. After she learned that the phone number belonged to Benitez, she reported the incident to Bank of America and to law enforcement. Uh, She alleges that the bank was aware that he had a history of sexual harassment, uh, both banking and financial uh, uh, clients, um, uh, but did not appropriately act to prevent further misconduct. Um, uh, So she has alleged sexual harassment uh, against both the bank and Mr. Benitez, distributing private sexually explicit images and intruding into private affairs, uh, and also uh, alleges the bank of negligence. Um, uh, in addition to Benitez, the, new, the suit names other uh, Bank of America employees, accusing them of intruding on her privacy by looking through her personal and private photos, because it's unknown if he sent those photos to other bank employees or not. So, uh, 
Bank of America has declined to comment, said that Benitez no longer works there as of last year. Unclear whether the end of his employment uh, had anything to do uh, with these allegations or was something else, a voluntary departure perhaps, or some of the other sexual harassment alleged uh, by the complaint. Maybe that had something to do with it or maybe related to this complaint. Uh, unclear and Bank of America ain't talking. So we can only speculate about what happened there. But crazy. Don't uh, do that. What? Uh, don't, yeah, don't, one, don't do that. Two, <laughs> uh, th- this, is, this is real bad. Three, how does she prove damages? I mean, there's emotional distress damages. I, I don't dispute that. But what, what, how does she show damages for this? Lost royalties. I, now that the photos are in the public domain, fans and this was like infringing on that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but wow, like there's not a whole lot of, of quote unquote damages she's going to be able to point to. Maybe this is a something to find out where the images were sent. That would be fascinating if she could figure that out and through discovery and through subpoena power. But the damages aspect, I think, is really where. It's not going to be worth a, a thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, I would wonder here, maybe given the nature of some of the allegations, because this is a little outside of our normal employment context, because it's not an employee making making the lawsuit, uh, bringing the lawsuit. But I wonder if, given that this is in California, if there's not some strict liability, maybe that comes with some some of these statutes that might be violated, uh, distributing someone else's personal or confidential or private information without their consent or knowledge uh, could bring with it just a statutory yeah, filing, required Filing uh, under like fine. a revenge porn statute. Yeah. Oh, I bet you that might actually come into play, the old revenge porn. Right, because there's, there's harassment <laughs> yeah. and then distributing private sexually explicit images and intruding into private affairs. Um, uh, you know, negligence just being a basic tort claim. But uh, yeah, I would wonder if there's something statutory, especially in California where this is being brought, that would uh, speak to the damages question. Fascinating. Totally fascinating. Uh, Good story. Any thoughts on on the bank's liability here for for the actions of a manager? Uh, Normally we talk about agency We've talked about it a few times on the podcast before, right? That uh, the agent of the employer needs to be working within course and scope of employment. Is that an issue here? It's a problem for Bank of America. I mean, he got access to her phone through his role as a B of A manager. So I think that dooms them from a respondeat superior standpoint i think so too i mean this is clear clearly helping a customer with access to the mobile app is within the scope of his work so once he's to the app or to the phone and has it unfiltered he's still within his job there so i think there's and make america's certainly the place where she gets whatever damages she's going to get because they're the deeper pocket, but it this is fascinating about the, that scope. I think it, he clearly would be. Yeah, I agree. I just frame it here because you know it could be susceptible to an argument uh, uh, from Bank of America saying, you know, he's not. That's not part of his job. He's not supposed to do that. He's not allowed to do that. That's outside the course and scope of his responsibilities. But I think we all agree here that he was doing it at a time when he was holding himself out as an agent of the organization, uh, doing it during work time, uh, uh, and, and otherwise as part of another transaction that he was supposed to be helping with within the scope of his job. Uh, there's no question for me that this is within course and scope, uh, such that, uh, Bank of America could still be on the hook for his, for his wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's even easier because he's a manager. If this was a regular, 
uh, teller position, that might be a little bit harder because yep. that teller doesn't have the authority to sign things and be recognized as the entity under purposes of law for other things. But because he's a manager, it's even easier. Yeah. And I don't want to engage in victim blaming here. I really don't. I mean, you have an absolute right to have nude selfies on your phone. You have an absolute right to turn your phone over to somebody for business purposes and expect that they're not going to look at your pictures. Totally get that. But have either of you ever heard a story involving nude selfies on a cell phone that ended well? <laughs> no. No, no, I never have. And I, and I think it's the role of every parent to have this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe there's multitudes of stories out there that just because they ended well, nobody, nobody filed a lawsuit and then we don't hear about them. That that's gotta be right? it. Cause from, I have to imagine that like 98% of all people have nude selfies on their phone. Just from what I've read in the press. It's just, that I'm would just mean make- all of us do. And I'm going to say, I do not have nude selfies of myself <laughs> on my phone. I don't know what the all is on your phone, but uh, not over here. Yeah, maybe not in Minnesota. Maybe that's just an Oregon thing, Dennis. I wasn't even going to say it was an Oregon anyway. thing. I was going to say it's a Florida <laughs> thing because it always seems to happen there. Maybe because it's yeah, warmer. Yeah, that's fair. But, yes. you know. <laughs> Up here in the cold states, we don't do that. Hmm. Or we have the yeah, good no, sense I, to have a burner phone that we don't turn over to a bank teller. Well, see, here we have those <laughs> shots on our phones, but there's um, strategically placed uh, marijuana plants in front of anything that could be uh, uh, true, know, problematic. Uh, or mushrooms book. or whatever else, right. because you have them all now. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, yeah. Um I think I'll finish up here uh, with one more question for both of you, uh, because I know that the two of you are the two biggest football fans I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are your predictions for today's Super Bowl? Every by the time people listen to this, they'll know the answer, but we don't. Uh, Bucks or Chiefs? Dennis, uh, you go first. 49ers. We have one vote for 49ers. It's probably the only other team name Dennis could come up with. Seahawks. Uh, <laughs> hey, I would be happy with the Seahawks. Uh, I have a hard time with football and most contact sports because I did do some work on the NHL concussion cases. And for that reason, uh, I have a hard time watching them, knowing that the end of life for these folks is going to be miserable in lots of cases. So uh, then on top of that, I've got a team with a racist name and then an asshole as a quarterback on the other side. So I, re- I really don't know who to cheer who, for. So Who do you predict to lose more? <laughs> I hope the Bucks lose more. I will Because say. of Tom. Yeah, I think so. But I really want I really want Kansas City to to change your name. Naval, to change their name because I think Patrick Mahomes has a future even though I'm not really watching football, but I really hope that they have a come to some sort of deity meeting and decide that that's not the name that they should have. You know, so. for years they got away with it cuz it wasn't the most racist name in the NFL. Right, right. 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 So, They're like, hey, as now, long as Washington exists, we're like, yeah. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Uh huh. Nobody look at Casey. Yeah. But. But it's time, Casey. Yeah, time. Casey and and Cleveland, Atlanta, and baseball. It's time. Yeah, I mean, not everybody can have a gritty, but it's there's somebody else you can come up with. So. Well, how about Tampa Bay? I mean, that's racist against pirates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but pirates is not a protected class, just like cheeseheads from Wisconsin are not a protected class, and so I can make fun of them. Okay, fair enough. All right. I think on that note, we will wrap it up here. Uh, 
Dennis, thank you for joining us. How, how Thanks for having people me. find you if they wanted to? Hire a private investigator. <laughs> <laughs> or a recruiter. Um, Recruiters can find anybody. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably your best bet. And your name is Dennis Westland. That is correct. Find him on LinkedIn. can also find him on the Bullard Law website. You can also find me there. <laughs> and there you can download... Such a good hype man. You can download clothed photos of me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's just from kind of shoulders up, so you can use your imagination with the rest one That's way That's true. The other. It may be a pantsless photo of me. You could print it out and then just draw the rest. <laughs> just draw the rest. Wow. Good. Okay. Uh, Kate, Kate, how In fact, I encourage all you? listeners to do that and then scan and send those to the Hostile Work Environment podcast. Yes, HWE podcast at gmail.com, please. We yes, will post I, I that on our that. Facebook page. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you can find me on the Twitters at K8BISCH or LinkedIn at Kate Bischoff. I hope to find you all there. And how about you, Mark? Where can we find you? Same as always. Can all find me on Twitter at Salad Pants. Uh, now at the Bullard Law website as well. My profile and new photo are up as of this week. Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Friendster. Whatever, whatever you use, my, MySpace, maybe I've logged in, maybe. I don't know. You could find me there. Uh, What's your AOL? But if you, uh, if you... <laughs> Gosh, you know, I did have one. I believe it was, I think it was M.E. Alifans was my AOL. I used to use that a ton back in the day. But if you're going to take the picture of Mark and draw pants on him, it has to be in a, an arugula or preferably romaine style salad pant. So. Yeah. I mean, if you guys take the effort to do that, I, uh, I'll throw it up on Twitter. Absolutely. Okay. Bye, right, everybody. Guys. Have a good week. Wear a mask. Thank Bye. you both. Uh, be back in a couple weeks. Bye. <laughs>